podcast one production. I'm automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. I'm in Melbourne for this episode on the eve of the Motorsport Australia Gala Awards. My guest is Roland Dane, an incredibly successful team owner with immense drive and a thirst for victory that's never waned over the years. His squad has a very impressive record in Australia and before that in the UK. In supercars alone, there are eight drivers' championships, nine teams' championships and seven wins in the famed Bathurst 1000. That's at the time we recorded. No doubt the tally will grow. If you follow supercars, you'll have seen him entrenched in his Red Bull Holden racing team pit garage with a trademark notepad in his pocket, always keeping track of things to improve or fix. The story goes that he was once congratulated by a rival team owner for being among the few to build a profitable business in world motorsport. It's a tough game, and that's not easily done. With success comes the knockers. Not everyone who follows the sport likes him. They've labelled him a power broker and worse. That doesn't bother Roland, but if you listen, maybe your view will change or at least give you a greater appreciation for the man, his determination, his work ethic and management style. In many ways, he's like a champion chess player. Now, if you don't like some things he says, I'm not going to apologise for that. I've always believed the podcast was about our guest and their view. We'll even the ledger, if we need to, with the right of reply. That's another strong policy I have. We cover some ground in our discussion, including the high-profile defection of his long-standing engineer, Ludo Lacroix, how close he went to signing Simona Di Silvestro, and the shock decision by General Motors to kill off the legendary Holden brand. That's later. His journey began in the UK, where he gravitated to mechanical things from a very young age. Um, I had my first car when I was 12 years old, which was a thing called a Morris 1000, uh, when we'd moved from Ireland to England. And um, my father decided I could spend £50 of my grandfather's money on buying a, a Morris 1000 that I could take apart put back to back together uh, drive around the yard um, not that they called it a yard over there <laughs> but uh, <laughs> drove it around the paddock as it were and up and down the, the dirt road to, to their house my parents house there um, yeah and then went on from there to be honest and by the time I was 16 I was heavily into um, into motorcycles Is it fair to say that you are a student of life role and a student of motorsport that probably sums you up in some ways I mean, I've got uh, plenty of interest outside motorsport and I also like to think that the grounding that my uh, parents and grandparents gave me um, enabled me to see more than just um, just the field I operate in today uh, but yeah we've got a very diverse uh, family <laughs> and um and even now I've got you know, one daughter who, who loves motorsport and another one who loves horses, very different. I think it does everyone good to have 
things outside their immediate sphere of um, of work, as it were, even if it's something that you really enjoy. But you also can see further than that and um, and it enjoy enjoy other things. People see Roland Day in the success story now, but it was far from that to begin with. It was very humble beginnings in many respects for you, wasn't it? Oh, certainly in in motorsport, I had to uh, I had to earn my stripes, and and um, I was never any good as a rider or a driver um, beyond a very amateur level. But even trying to yeah you know, to to run teams, um, everything I uh, I know and practice today comes from uh, watching other people years ago and being lucky enough to be around some. Uh, some very good operators, <laughs> etc. Um, being able to hang out for many years with my best mate Derek Warwick, and um, really see with him you know, some of the best operators in the business. But no, I left uh, school when I was eighteen in the UK and went to work for Panther Car Company uh, and building cars for uh, for the first ten years or so of my life before I started working for myself. And uh, and then I had uh, built up the business that I still have in the UK today that sells cars around the world that um, in the late 80s uh, built that up myself. And it's um, it's been a lot of fun at the same time as the motorsport. But motorsport's the thing that I've enjoyed the, the most and I've had to put, I have had to put a lot of effort into, into trying to get it right. Were you a bit of a, a gopher at Panther and what sort of roles did you have there? Because I, I, I sense it was many and varied and that helped you in lots of ways yeah when i f- uh, first went to work there it was the company was owned and run by a guy called robert jankel and um he was an entrepreneur it was basically a, uh from the fashion industry you know the rag trades it was called in the in those days and um but he loved cars and he'd started building um, cars as a hobby and then it became a business. Uh, and it was a, it was a very interesting business, but small, you know, um, 50, 60 people in the, in the mid seventies when I first went to work there. Um, but I was very privileged in that he, he took me immediately under his, under his wing and um, then got me to work in each department of the, of the business. So, yeah, work in the in the body shop, work in the assembly shop, work in the paint shop, etc. Work in the trim shop um, for a few months. Um, work in the accounts department and work in the sales department to try and give me a, a broad understanding of of what went in to to operating a business like that. So uh, I actually. Um, look back on that, and I was I was looking back at it at a, and discussing it at a PWR board meeting the other day this week. Uh, in that type of apprenticeship, informal impre- apprenticeship, if you like, uh, and how well it served me, and taking some of those lessons to discuss around the board table at PWR the other day. So I was very privileged. I want to tap back into something you said uh, a moment ago because I can hear our our listeners saying, hey, ask more about that, about the fact that you did compete. So two-part question. Firstly, the two-wheel side, because I know you love I love you love the bikes. Was there a, a two-wheel hero and what kind of bike racing did you do? So um, my father hated motorcycles and he wouldn't allow me to have anything more than a Honda 50, you know, like a posty bike. Yeah. 
So um, I, ha- I had a number of them. I, I think I had six or seven, and so that I could build one or two good ones out of out of the wreckage of six or seven of them. And uh, but, unbeknown to him, uh, I don't think he ever knew actually until the day he died that um, uh, halfway in between home and school. Um, I had an arrangement with the father of a friend of mine to use one of his lockups. He had um, f- 50-odd lockup garages in the back of the town where the school was. So I dropped the posty bike in there because it wasn't cool to arrive at school on that. And I had a um, Honda 305 um, that, I, uh, that I rode then to school. So um, I was heavily into them, and when I then I, when I moved out of out of home um, into London, when I was first working for Panther, um, I started racing uh, motorcycles and yeah, joined local club and etc. I think it was called the ACU in the UK, the equivalent of Motorsport Australia or something on on two wheels. Um, got my license, uh, went and bought a thing called a Triumph Tiger Cub. And um, with a mate of mine who was one of the people sharing the house with, we bought an old Ford Transit, a knackered Ford Transit, um, and put our bikes in the back and went racing. And the first year was an absolute disaster because the Triumph Tiger Cubs were some of the shittiest bikes you'd ever come across. <laughs> you know, we, we were lucky if we got a lap of practice before they broke down or something happened or whatever. Or, yeah, combination of fo- breaking down, us falling off. It was a particularly useless period. But luckily, somebody had invented Yamahas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I loved those bikes, the 250s and the 400s. We used to race the 400s in the 500 class. Um, <laughs> two strokes, which you could work on very easily. Yeah take apart very easily in the front room of the house and um, put together yourself, etc. You could play with them, you could tune them, you could learn uh, a lot pretty quickly on how to make them go. And, of course, they're always reliable. So you, you get a full day's racing. Um, and uh, so that was my f- first, you know, three or four years or so uh, of racing was on was on two wheels. Were you getting the knee down and were there ambitions to be a... Uh, I don't know, a Barry Sheen or a Kenny Roberts or somebody like that? Well, I certainly wasn't getting the knee down. The <laughs> production tyres in those days uh, weren't really good enough to do that, um, even if I'd been good enough. But, the, uh, yeah, I spent an awful lot of time going as well to, uh, to watch bike racing. I loved going to, to watch bike racing. And um, some huge crowds in those days, in the 70s, uh, particularly going to watch big money races you know where guys were getting paper bags full of cash to go and race in those days you know the stars they'd they'd rock up and so and watching people like Agostini, Phil Reed, (coughs) um, Barry Sheen, uh, Kenny Roberts uh, race when they'd when they'd come to the UK, and it, we used to go to Assen as well because that was a, and it still remains a, tra- a traditional trek for for Poms, like like four wheel ones go to to watch Le Mans, yeah. In yeah. two wheels, people always go to the Dutch TT to Assen, and so we'd go over there um, each year, but uh, certainly 
the heroes. I mean, you, you've recently spoke to, spoken to to one of the heroes from that era, and I haven't listened to it yet, but Graham Crosby, um, who I met for the first time a couple of years ago in New Zealand. But he, he was um, he was a real hero, um, Greg Hansford, um, because uh, he really had to to wring the neck of his Kawasaki to on the big bike it just wasn't as quick as the Yamaha's and on the smaller bike he was too big for them yeah he was really too big for 250s and 350s which is why he struggled to beat Cork Ballington who's South African who lives in Australia now so those guys were um, were definitely people that uh, you know I, I looked up to watched was fascinated by uh, their lifestyle as well yeah, they were. You, you, they had Mercedes Sprinter vans, three hundred eight diesel uh, vans. I think they were with a caravan on the on the back, um, one or two mechanics, often themselves, and and three or four bikes in the back. And they'd go off and they'd race every weekend. And the Grand Prix didn't really pay them any money, but these other races. Uh, would pay them big money and uh, so to go to places like Mallory Park or Brands Hatch um, and um, or Alton Park and watch them rock up uh, and compete you know do 20 laps 25 lap races but do it three or four times during the de- during the day and sometimes on different bikes um, with yeah the front row had as many people as could stuff onto the front row it wasn't wasn't very organised those that, those races but they were fantastic Great period, great memories that you've recounted there. There is a four-wheel chapter for you two driving, and I want to say it's a Honda Civic. Is that right? Tell me about that. Where did you race? How did you go? And I think even when Jess arrived, very soon after Jess arrived into the world, you still went off racing, didn't you? Yeah, so I, uh, the first first car I bought was a Ford Fiesta, actually. I had a one-make Fiesta racing in the early 80s. So, yeah, bikes, I'd, I'd finished uh, bike racing when I realised that um, I wasn't quite stupid enough. I don't think I was a member of the Self Preservation Society, and they uh, and almost every other person uh, every time we'd race at Snetton wasn't. And so I had a lot of fun, but then I decided I'd, I had I fell off. I didn't break anything, but I badly hurt my shoulder. And uh, so I thought, okay, well, um, time for four wheels. Uh, I'd got married as well, so I had a, a Fiesta. Um, one make uh, car which I did a, a, a little bit in a couple of seasons of racing with that then setting up business all the rest of it so for several years I didn't race um, etc and my first uh, daughter Alexandra was born um, and then I got back into um, back into it on the back on the back of really um, uh, being encouraged by Derek and uh, so ended up with Honda Civic CRX, the little one-make championship, and then migrating into what was called Group N back then with um, with Civics, and um, it was a, it was a very enjoyable period. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't brilliant at it, but when I did get a good good result because. You know, it was half wet, and I was the only person who could afford new tyres or whatever it was at the time. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. You've touched on on business and your success there, and the guys at the car sales website here in in Australia reminded me of. I mean, there's been uh, restaurants, hotels, things like that. But you touched on the car company before and the longevity of that and what you've done. Just expand on it a little bit more. I mean, there was one year there, I think, where you 
might have been Rolls or Bentleys, I can't remember, maybe both. You sold nearly 100 in a year and... and um, were you hands-on with that? What were you, what were you doing? Oh, very hands-on. We were selling um, we were selling right-hand drive vehicles around the Asian markets, really. Hong Kong, Japan, Thailand, um, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, all right-hand drive, same as the UK. So, uh, and there was an active parallel market um in uh in luxury cars that we were servicing big time and in 1993 um yeah i sold 93 new rolls royce and bentley cars they were the same company then uh and a year or two before uh, they had some new model come out and they sent a note to all the dealers in the uk that there were two people's names that they didn't want to see on the waiting list and one was a guy called william locker and a very successful uk dealer even today and myself and i took that as a bit of an honor that they didn't they um, but by the time we got to 93 that the uk was having a very hard time so at the end of that year i actually got a christmas card from the rolls royce boss <coughs> um thanks for your efforts and uh yeah so that had been an ex- it wasn't good in the uk uh, business at that point but in, in overseas for us it was it, it was extremely good people talk now about you know the challenges of doing business in asia did you find that challenging what were the learnings in that period like i had to learn it the hard way um so i'd learned something about dealing in the middle east uh with panther um in the early 80s and uh then um, yeah, I first went to Japan in 1986, and from there uh, had to quite quickly. You know, there wasn't the the resources, if you like, in terms of looking up and googling how do you how do you operate business wise in in Japan. Um, so I had to to learn it pretty quickly, and um, and then understand that Asia wasn't all the same. So what was good etiquette in Japan wasn't in Thailand or Malaysia, etc. So. Uh, and in those days, the, that was pre-single market in Europe. So, and I had a an Irish passport and an English passport, which has, I still have, but I have an Australian one as well now. But the um, the way that Irish and English citizens got treated in different colours in different countries, rather for visa to visa, changed where you were. So in Japan, you always used the English passport because the Irish one you needed a visa to get in, and the so you used the POMI one to get in there. On the other hand, if I'd gone to Brunei on a on a um, Irish one, they would have thought I was a member of the IRA or something. So you used the English one in Malaysia. You'd go in there and you'd get um, three months on your passport if you're Irish and two weeks if you're English. <laughs> so, um, so you quickly learn how to how to operate under uh, across the different countries and the different cultures. Um, and it's something to be honest. Today, I still value the fact that you know one of my oldest friends <laughs> um, is the Lamborghini dealer in in Hong Kong, um, who was just texting me last night to ask if one of his uh, nephews could come and spend the weekend with us at the Grand Prix because he's into karting in in China. I want to, before we get to Derek Warwick and and more of the motorsport stuff in a second here, I want to just turn right very briefly. Quick little yarn that that people um, mightn't know is that you project managed (laughs) a hovercraft build. Did you? Te- I think you were testing it in a lake by the M4 in the UK or something or other. Tell us a bit about that project. Yeah, you, you've done a bit of homework. <laughs> uh, the so I've become 
very interested in hovercraft in the uh, late 70s when I was racing bikes as well and or actually before I yeah before that before I left home um, I'd met a guy uh, called um, Nigel Beale and he was a professor at Cranfield University but he was also a hovercraft nutcase and he and he had um come up with this kit uh, or set of drawings that really plus some bits and pieces to put together your own hovercraft using a, a little rotex two-stroke engine and everything and anyway so i was also fascinated because he had come up with a concept in 1978 you remember the fan car the yes. brabham fan car well um chapman had gone to him the next day after that swedish grand prix and said we need your expertise to make our own fan car with two fans one in either side pod uh, anyway it didn't come to anything because it got banned as you know the the brabham um, so it put the lid on it but he was the go-to person for uh, for yeah fans hovercraft of of um, uh, smaller sized hovercraft etc. So I built this this hovercraft in the in the garage at my parents' house actually when I was um, still at school, and um, I actually <laughs> road tested it first across their lawns, um, and I made the skirt on my mother's um, sewing machine for it. Uh, which I was very proud of at the time. She wasn't particularly happy with the way her sewing machine was treated, but it, but it all worked. And the and um, the day I first ran it, um, actually killed one of my father's ornamental ducks. He had a load of ornamental ducks around the property, and and, they, and I ran one over. Unfortunately, killed it because uh, I wasn't steering it very well. But I learned how to steer it, and uh, and then started racing that as well and that was um real there was a lot of fun actually to i didn't do that much of it but over a couple of years i <laughs> i raced the um that hovercraft and had uh yeah a lot of near misses let me tell you because they they're quick on wet grass especially um country estates where they'd hold those races um they were hair racing anyway off the <laughs> um off the back of that it so happened that uh, Robert Jenkel at Panther had got an inquiry for um, from a guy in in the Bahamas to build a hovercraft for him, um, and uh, so we were going to end up building this six seater hovercraft at um, at Panther. Well, it was actually at, at Robert's house in Weybridge in the barns there that we built this aluminium hulled hovercraft with input from this guy from Cranfield, Nigel Beale, and we used two Honda um, Honda Goldwing engines, the, which were four-cylinder in those days. So one of my best friends who still runs my business in England for me um, was working at a motorcycle dealer, and I rang him up and bought two, um, two Honda um, gold wings off him that we then took the engines out of and made into the power units for this hovercraft um, w which we yes we tested extensively at Thorpe Park which is next to the M3 um, uh, not that far from, from Heathrow we ex uh, tested it extensively in there and, and we delivered it to too old mate in, in America um, but I didn't really hear anything more about it after that <laughs> I love it, Roland Dane hovercraft racer, I never thought I'd, I'd use those words. The connection with Derek Warwick, let's, let's expand on that a little bit um, for people listening I mean, uh, ex-Formula 1 racer Le Mans winner, world sports cars did BTCC as well 
he in recent years had a had a bit of a battle with cancer which I'm pleased he's he's clear of which is which is good news how did the relationship between the two of you you come together it's it's been strong in a friendship sense in a business sense hasn't it really yeah so we've known each other for well over 30 years now and um uh along the way yeah we've had some huge um ups and downs but to be honest in the um in the late 80s early early 90s um i was actually in many ways closer to his um to his younger brother and paul was an up-and-coming uh, racer in formula three and formula 3000 and uh and of course he lived in on the mainland in the uk not very far from me whereas derek lived in jersey and the channel line still does so uh and there's uh and paul's best friend is uh, uh back in those days that um he'd known since he was a kid is still one of my closest friends today as well from that um area of hampshire uh, in the south of England. So the thing that really drew, though, Derek and I together um, uh, was the tragedy around his, uh, around his brother. And uh, we went from being mates to, to, to then really being best mates around, around that time uh, when, yeah, July uh, 91, when Paul was killed. Um, Formula 3000 car at, uh, at Oldham Park. And it was uh, still remains today the most uh, traumatic day of my life, and certainly for him as well, and his family. Uh, and it was uh, then after that, in the aftermath of that, which was extremely difficult for him because you know, do I race? Don't I race? Do I carry on, etc. And um, but also, yeah, the fact that he'd been. Um, I wouldn't say pushing Paul so hard, but he'd been facilitating Paul. Yeah, he'd been opening doors for him, as you would if you're a Formula One driver and everything, and you've got an up-and-coming younger brother uh, who, to be honest, had the potential to be faster than Derek and uh, was um, uh, Derek then... I think he felt a bit responsible uh, for it to you know, to his parents and everything, etc. Which he shouldn't have done. Um, if he did, he shouldn't have done. But but he he took it very hard, and uh, so we yeah we spent an awful lot of time talking to each other and and uh, and travelling etc. In the in the aftermath of that, uh, so yeah, we'd already raced together in terms of his, my Hondas were run out of one of his dealerships and all that sort of thing. But that, that really, um, uh, really brought us together uh, big time, unfortunately, on the back of that tragedy. The learnings from him too, I, I think I'm right in saying that for you, he could help the cut through. And motor racing in the public sense is this bright, shiny thing and, you know, it has its it has its moments. But as an owner, as as someone who's embedded in the sport, you need to to cut through an engineering debrief. You need to get to the heart of things to to make stuff better, to win and so forth. And he was very good at, at helping you learn in that side of it, I think. Is that correct? Yeah, he, he certainly um, he, he certainly made a big difference to me in terms of uh, increasing my knowledge uh, at a professional level much faster than I otherwise would have done uh, but also the fact that he had worked with some good people that I could also see you know when you when you walked into that um, Peugeot garage for instance 92 when they were running the sports car world championship uh, the year he won Le Mans um, 
but when you walked into the garage or wherever they were racing etc you could see a, a level of um, calmness a level of uh, professionalism uh, that was missing from a lot of places um, you could you could see when he was racing the the Jaguar the year before XJR um, 14 um, where Ross Braun was the the guy who designed it and the chief engineer there etc uh, you can see an, an attention to detail um, in the in the car etc which was um, something to look up to at the time I mean to be honest those cars from both the, the Jaguar at that time um, and the uh, Persia and probably the Sauber at the time I wasn't close enough to it but it were, they were better than half the F1 grid in terms of the way that they were put together and the way that they, they were uh, very good bits of engineering, which is why, of course, yeah, certain people in the uh, in the motorsport world decided that Group C, as it was then, shouldn't really exist and that, that, that uh, Formula One had to be the preeminent thing and, and, and really snuffed, snuffed Group C out. Was there ever a want to go to Formula One? You know, I mean, we look at what you've achieved in England and here, and we'll get to that in a moment, but but was Formula One ever on your radar, and if not, why not? Uh, well, I was offered a job as a um, as a buyer at a small team, <laughs> a Fittipaldi team, in 1980. Um, I think it was 79 or 80 when I was a Panther. And um, I didn't take it, and maybe I should have done as a, as a way in. Um, but then Derek and I used to talk about it in the early 90s. Uh, you know, is there a point at which we could do something? You know, was it achievable and everything? And to be honest, we saw the pain that some of the people were going through at that stage. You know, um, I knew I knew Mike Earl, who was running the, the Moneytron team, or Onyx became Moneytron, etc., in the late that sort of eight, late 80s, early 90s period. And I, yeah, you could see how hard work that was. Then Eddie Jordan came along in 91 uh, and um, yeah, heard all the stories back then about how hard it was to, to keep going. Um, and and uh, honestly, we, we thought it was, no, that's, um, we're not prepared to... to take those risks um, at, uh, by the time we were in sort of mid-90s and we weren't prepared to. So there is a little backstory about Triple Eight, what it means in terms of its of its name. But what was the point where you decided to to form this and hit the go button and, and in a business sense, go motor racing? Yeah, well, it, it, I, was, um, I was driving myself early 90s, etc. I was also owned um, several... Uh, BTCC cars that James Kay was driving, for instance, in um, 93, um, yeah, 92, 93. Uh, and um, then there was the opportunity to, to be part of something becoming more professional, setting up as a business uh, with Derek um, Ian Harrison and uh, an engineer called John Gentry and so and this was really mid 90s BTCC was extremely strong almost too strong for its own good you know there were too many manufacturers there they couldn't all win and um, and Derek was a very successful Honda dealer by that stage um, with uh, I can't remember four or five 
different dealerships uh, in the south of England. So uh, there was an opportunity to potentially take on the, the Honda deal if we could put something together. Well, we didn't get that, but then we did get um, GM because GM Vauxhall, the motorsport manager, rang, uh, rang Derek and said, I gather you're trying to put something together. Um, would you be interested in doing it for us? So, um, so Derek called me and said, and I said, yeah, well, let's try and do it. And I put the business plan together for it and, and gave it to, uh, to GM and they, they took us on. And that started a relationship which in the UK lasted until 2009, you know, on the back end of the GFC when it, when it eventually finished. But, um, and I also, yeah, a very good operator in, in, in Harrison who remains a good friend today. Uh, and and Derek, myself, we were not only uh, doing building and running cars in the UK, but we we're also we were selling cars to Sweden. We had a couple of cars running in Turkey at one point. Uh, we were running a one make series for for Vauxhall as well with the Vectras um, in the late nineties as well. So it was um, it was a good period, very busy period and a good period and and we had a we had a really nice uh factory uh an old um ministry of defense site in between banbury and and silverstone uh that latterly has been used by multimatic and uh ganazzi to run their uh their ford program which finished the end of last year but in europe and uh but that building was a built like a brick shithouse because it was <laughs> it was so well built uh, and um, it was a part of a listening station for GCHQ because it was on a very high bit of ground. Um, so beautifully built uh, place, uh, and we yeah, we put together, a, I think, a pretty good operation there. Common causes of oversteer, cold tires, rear-wheel drive, wet roads, or the most common, P-platers and peer pressure. You've ridden some great waves, you know, a golden period in supercars in Australia, super touring in the 90s, you, I mean, when you spoke about that before, it was awesome, insane budgets, fantastic racing, engineering that was phenomenal. How big, give us a sense of how big that operation got with all the categories you talked about running before and, you know, the Vectra program was a big deal, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't the biggest, though, in those days. I mean, our budget was one of the smaller ones, but it <laughs> still seems uh, obscene today. Uh, we, had, we got up to about 60 people, um, probably just over at, at the height of it. And uh, when we were running um, three cars... Uh, with a full factory budget in 2000, so uh, yeah, it was it was big. Uh, there was we were making very good money out of it, uh, but we didn't have the budget that ProDrive had from Ford, for instance, and um, uh, Nissan for the, they were spending as well with with RML. So uh, I could see that it was going to implode, honestly, um, and the marketing budgets in the UK uh, were starting to be cut drastically. Yeah, the world was changing. Um, the UK, the car market, um, I can't remember which of the manufacturers coined the term, but in the 90s, they used to call it Treasure Island because they were making so much money there. 
So, uh, but that started to change. The world started to change in uh, late 90s um, and got a lot more difficult. And this was even pre 9 11. And so budgets got cut and we had to very quickly cut our cloth at 888 to suit a yeah, brave new world in 2001 with BTCC where almost all the other teams had either disappeared overnight or had to find something else to something else to do. It's a strength of yours, isn't it? You're not just thinking about Australian Grand Prix next or Winton down the road. You're thinking years in advance. Have you always been like that? Oh, I've tried to anticipate things because um, don't forget I've worked in the broader industry for so long and you know I'm a very keen student of what's going on around the world in the car world etc in particular and uh, so therefore uh, some of the things that have happened you can anticipate um, you can't anticipate the effects of viruses or something yeah. but you can affect you can see what's happening in a developing automotive world and uh, so some of the road bumps have been possible to foresee you can't always avoid them but maybe you can lessen the blow sometimes and so uh, in the in that period uh, in the early 2000s it was very necessary to it, just for BTCC to survive to, to recut um, the category recut the series um, on a on a completely different financial uh, level. Other, otherwise, it would have um, withered away. Before that period of change, one box that you ticked, which I think is really cool, is Bathurst. So you knew from family about Bathurst. Am I right in saying you used to get kind of newspaper clippings or something rather sent to your family? He would talk to you about it. And it, it was always held in really high regard by you, even before you, you came here in the late 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, my, um, my godfather, um, who's um, long, long passed away now, but uh, he was a GP in Adelaide. And uh, so he, very early on, I can't remember when, but for years and years, he um, gave me a subscription to Wheels magazine. And... Um, and I always, to be honest, I loved the magazine anyway because it was in those days. It wasn't an advertorial; it was a, a very irreverent um, magazine, and uh, it was, had a different approach. But it also um, showed me, for the first time, you know, uh, exposed me to Bathurst and stories about it. And then the uh, in the mid eighties when. Uh, the likes of Walkinshaw, um, Soper, etc., were coming out and racing at Bathurst uh, in the sort of Group A um, era. Uh, the BBC used to show highlights uh, of the race later the same day, obviously a big time difference. So they'd show one or two hour highlights package, uh, etc. And it was pretty wild uh, to see this circuit, you know, and see how how good the racing was or looked at next to what uh, the average one we had in the, in the circuit we had in the UK. So um, so I had an appreciation of it. But of course, then in, uh, in 97, uh, when uh, uh, Vesco, as it was then, and, and Toker Australia, and every, yeah, they're all at war, etc. <laughs> and it wasn't our war over in the UK, but, um, but we were... 
uh, given the opportunity to be mercenaries and come out and uh, and paid very big money to come and race in 97 and 98 uh, at Bathurst um, in the two-litre race. So, of course, we took it with open arms. Firstly, our season was over. Secondly, we all wanted to come here. And thirdly, we were going to earn some good coin. Um, so we came, yeah, 97, uh, Derek drove with Brocky. Um, and uh, then back in then 98, uh, we had um, Derek driving with Cleland and we had uh, also Murphy driving with Ingle in a car that Holden paid for separately. To be honest, I think we got paid for that twice. <laughs> I, think, I think Channel Seven paid us and Holden paid us. So, it was a, so that was '98 was a good, a good result, but it was a it was an engineering challenge because we'd never driven, you know, raced the cars that far, um, and uh, so we had, yeah, we we did. Um, quite a lot of testing uh, during not so much 97 because it crept up in 97 pretty quickly but when we realised what the challenge was in 98 uh, we did two tests at Pembury in Wales uh, with a specific aim of running the cars for eight hours uh, to see, see yeah, would they stand up to yeah and there, there are a couple of very slow corners there that sort of put a big strain on the front wheel drive system um, and we ended up uh, the the weak point of the cars was the uh, universal joint on the on the uh, on the front axle both sides, and so we ended up having this grease which would actually run the thousand k's, which was um, I think twelve hundred pounds a tin, and we needed half a dozen tins of this Holy stuff so, <laughs> to get us through the weekend. Yeah. So it was crazy, but um, it, it, it and it worked. Uh, the grease worked, but unfortunately, a couple of other things happened when yeah, Derek Derek drove off with a fuel tower attached to the car in the race, um, which uh, caused us plenty of hassle. And um, and Russell crashed at the uh, skyline on somebody else's oil. Um, so it wasn't as yeah. I think we could have been podium that that uh, that day. Uh, certainly with the with the Ingle Murphy car, we could have been on the podium. Uh, probably not beaten um, the Nissan or the Volvo that day, but we could have been on the podium. Did you fall in love with the place? And was it you know everything and more in terms of what you'd read about and. What was it like? You know, people listening to the podcast will fondly remember Brocky, who's gone now and has been since '06. What was it like working with him? Um, yeah, I'd met him a couple of times in the UK because he'd, he'd come over regularly and, and spend time with Gao, with Alan Gao, uh, who ran BTCC. And um, and and Gao's missus and mine were very friendly, uh, etc. So. Uh, I met it. Yeah, I, I knew him. Half knew him before. You know, so um, uh, and yeah, obviously had a few quirks, and I really liked to like to have you know, some herbal tea on on him at all times, etc. We, but we just we went with the flow, honestly, because he was the superstar. When we came over, he was the star, and uh, so we did what we needed to do to work around that and and give him what what he needed. We tried to point out that rear wheel drive cars. The rear tires are cold, and but his first lap uh, in '97, he he rolled it. Um, he rolled it at the kink, you know, coming into the Caltex chase. Um, he rolled it, and 
yeah, it took us an all-nighter and most of the next day to, to rebuild the car to get it out on track again after that. And after that, he realised that the rear tyres needed, uh, needed a bit of work to get the temp up on a front-wheel drive car. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was fascinating. The, the real thing, though, that was, uh, that was depressing was you had this magnificent track and you had an absolute shithole of a pit lane. And I couldn't believe that you'd got this beautiful circuit. Uh, and the facilities there were just dreadful. I mean, it was, uh, it was worse than Snetterton had been 20 years before. And, and, and that was shitty. So uh, that was a disappointment, big disappointment to see how crap they were. Yeah. Since then, it's gone through a massive, uh, massive upgrade. And we'll get to your, your supercar stuff in a second. Did you ever entertain the idea of moving to MotoGP? Was it some chat about maybe a 125 or a Moto3 team that you loosely toyed with the idea of expanding into? Am I, am I correct there? Well, it's more a case of sort of going off and doing that instead, if you like. Okay. Uh, um, a few years ago, I can't remember exactly, 2010, 2011 or something, and thinking that that... Uh, that would be something good to go and do and um because i still love it yeah i still love uh the whole bike scene and um though you know and i worked on a couple of opportunities that i thought could uh there might be something to do there but they never they never got beyond embryonic stage unfortunately but uh yeah it's it's a chapter that yeah that's or that ship sailed now but it's a chapter i wish that um Maybe I should have I should have put more effort into it because it would have been fun. Early two thousands, I think you're. You'll tell me if I've got this incorrect, but you're about forty five years old. You start discussions about a move to Australia and supercars. What was the beginning of that? What was the point where you thought I'm going to get on this this freight train and 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 have a crack at this? Yeah, there are a few things going on. Uh, to be honest, the uh, so personally had a divorce um separated in 1999 mm-hmm. and um business wise uh needed a new new challenge uh btcc had you know on the back of the of having to reposition it it is the cars weren't very exciting they're very necessary at the time but pretty boring uh compared with what we had beforehand um and there wasn't as much money in it obviously so you couldn't earn as much from it um so number number of different things and uh so uh i'd been out to 2001 i uh, came to um surface paradise to, to to the indycar race um caught up with people i knew there had a look around uh, met cochran for the first time uh spoke to him uh about yeah what was going on and what it looked like, what the commercial landscape was. Came back in a year later, did the same thing and thought, and I thought, look, honestly, I'm, I'm sort of ready to have a serious look at this. And, uh, and then I, I hadn't done very much about it, but the uh, early 03, um, the Walkinshaw uh, group fell over. And um, so, as you know, Holden went and picked up the pieces. But, of course, Holden, being a manufacturer, weren't allowed to own the teams. So they had to then 
divest themselves, if you like, of the uh, of the the two teams that you know Walkinshaw had been running, and. Um, so a guy called um, Kevin Whale was an Australian who'd worked at Holden and uh, and also at GM in Singapore. He, by this time, he was running uh, GM in the UK, and so we'd reported to him. You know, he was my direct report, if you like, for 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 Triple Eight in the UK. And um, I said to him, you know, any chance? I think we could go down there and do a good job. And he tried to facilitate the introductions, um, etc. But the the politics around it all was out of control, as I can see now. You know, I've, <laughs> later I could see, and they offered us the um, second tier thing with the which then became the Kelly's board. Um, they offered us that, but I said no. If we can't be the main thing, then I well don't want to be uh, a part of it, to be honest. Um, and Scafie ended up uh, with it, and yeah, in hindsight. It's very good not to have got involved with it because it all got very messy later on and all the rest of it. But um, but then Paul Radisich had said, uh, look, um, this guy, John Briggs, uh, in Brisbane, um, he's, um, he's probably gone as far as he can with it and uh, there could be an opportunity there to do something. So I went and saw him, um, I think, in June or July '03. Uh, and I'd never been to Brisbane apart from the airport before. Uh, so anyway, I, I, by this time, I already bought an apartment in Turak, uh, which turned out to be on the floor above Scafies. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> anyway, um, that was uh, uh, only emerged later. But I only ever stayed in the one in Turak, I think, three nights or four nights or something. I owned it for a few years. But the... Um, but then, because the I thought that would be the place to be, but suddenly Brisbane was on the radar. And so I went and saw John, um, and we sat down, went through it all, etc. And he told me what he thought it was worth, and I told him what I thought it was worth. And he said, okay, well, thanks very much, but no thanks. So I said, no problem, and went out for dinner with some people and everything, and then went to the airport the next day. And as I... When I was at the airport, he rang up and said, oh, maybe your figure is okay. And uh, I said, all right, okay, well, then I'll get to work on it. And I got KPMG to go and have a look at it, etc. And check it all stacked up. Um, and uh, he had some better electrical money at the moment. And I said, we well, better make sure that's transferable uh, for at least 2004 as well, uh, etc. And some Ford money. And, um, yep, okay, then I said, all right, I'll take the plunge. Um, and uh, so I took the plunge along with um, some money as well from uh, Derek and from Peter Butterley, mm-hmm. old Irish friend, and um, who was spending quite a lot of time in Australia himself as well at that time. And uh, so, uh, and bought it and um, then had to figure out really what was going on and how the championship worked and how the the sporting and technical side of it worked really over over 2004 and try and set ourselves up during that first year of competition in 04 for um, for then doing the job properly you know there's a huge learning in 04 but also trying to um, 
get the right drivers, um, get the right people in the team, put put a, a, a good crew together uh, through that period. And there were some good people already there. They just needed the the right uh, leadership. And some of those people are still around me today, as you know. That's the end of lap one of my chat with Roland Dane. Make sure you head back to the library and check out part two, where we talk about losing a long-standing member of his engineering staff to an arch-rival team and the shock of GM's decision to turn out the lights at Holden. Rusty's Garage is recorded for Podcast One. Written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcastoneaustralia.com.au. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely. Listener.